I'm Jesse Ventura. Stay vigilant. Question Welcome to my world. Come along for the ride. The world according, according to Jesse. 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 The American-led international order is in crisis, with American hedge money in question. Is the international community prepared for the future? Let's find out. Sit tight. The show starts now. The world according to Jesse. Historian Alfred McCoy predicts that U.S. domination could collapse by 2030 due to crushing debt, expensive wars, and out-of-control spending. The Congressional Budget Office estimates the U.S. deficit will surpass $1 trillion by 2020. At a certain point, the military-industrial complex simply won't be able to sustain itself. Meanwhile, the economies of so-called illiberal societies like China and India are on the rise. If America wants to maintain its standing in the world, it will need to convince China and India to play by its rules. But Jesse, how likely do you think that is with China establishing itself as the world's next economic superpower and leader in trade? Well, I think that, you know, telling China they have to play by our rules is going to be a very difficult task for us to do. And I think all this comes back to the fact when you look, China is going to be the next superpower on the economy. And why? Because they're not involving themselves in all these wars. If you go back in history and you look at every empire, and believe me, the United States of America is an empire. You look at every one of them, you see what brings them down. Wars throughout the world, it bankrupts them. It causes the country to go completely bankrupt to where they can't play their military industrial complex anymore and all their jobs are based upon that. And when that happens, say goodbye. Do you agree that it's only a matter of time before America bleeds itself into bankruptcy? Absolutely. We're on the road. Unless somebody radically changes our policies, we are heading down that road. I mean, from one war to the next war to the next war. And if you notice, it's the bankers. It's following the bankers that are leading to the wars. Because every country we want to go to war with is because they don't want to use the U.S. dollar anymore. Libya, Iraq, uh, Syria, Iran go down the whole list, all of them are trying to get away from the U.S. dollar probably to save themselves, and that's one of the reasons and why we attack them, go to war with them to destroy their government so they'll have to continue with the U.S. dollar. All right, the liberal world order was supposed to be about democracy, but now it seems to be more about spreading global capitalism. How did we get here? Well, how do we get there? By who controls our country? And when you are a fascist country like the United States is today, and corporations are controlling our elected officials, corporations are controlling our judicial part of government, and corporations are also controlling the legislative and executive branches of government. So when corporations are in control, that's how you get to where we're at today. Decisions are being made for corporations, not for people. Okay, so what lessons should the United States learn from the failed empires of the past, like the British Soviet Ottoman, for example? <laughs> 
Well, obviously, I don't think we're going to learn a lesson from them. I don't think we've got anybody that is even bothered in power to look and see what happened to the rest of these so-called empires. So we're not going to learn a thing from them. But what we should be learning from them is, again, it's wars that destroy empires. When you become the world's policeman and you are involved in every war that takes place, which is exactly where the United States is right now, find me a war that we're not involved in. I'd really like to know of one we're not involved in. There isn't any. We're involved in them all. And that's exactly what brought down these other empires. But apparently our leaders think we're exceptional, or either that or they're exceptionally stupid, thinking that it isn't going to happen to us, too. All right. The post-war order was built on a bipolar Cold War system with the Soviet Union on one side and the United States and its allies on the other. But after the Soviet Union collapsed, the system became unipolar, revolving strictly around the United States. Soon, most of the world's other nations adopted liberalism, and eventually, questions about U.S. authority began to emerge. Western-led wars and interventions have weakened the foundation of the current global order, and so have economic crises in Western societies. If American hegemony comes to an end, a new configuration of global power will emerge. Jesse, what do you think this new power structure is going to look like if this happens? Will it be the same as what we have now, with a different country dominating, or will it be benevolent and generous in sharing this power? <laughs> I don't think too many things in the world are benevolent and generous when it comes to sharing power. I think if the United States continues down the road that it's going and being involved in all these wars, we're going we're gonna to fall because we're going to disintegrate just like the old Soviet Union did. When you start banking on the military and completely on the military for all your jobs and all your economics, you're heading down the wrong road and you're heading down the road to destruction. And that's the road the United States has chose to go down. That's the road the people seem to like because you don't see many protests. I mean, when you look at, and we just pumped missiles into Syria without a declaration of war. And yet, nobody seems outraged except me. Why am I the only one screaming at the top of my lungs, whatever happened to the Constitution and Bill of Rights? Well, when they got flushed down the toilet, so did the United States of America. Could the fact that the U.S. empire is being threatened to be a driving factor in why our government has created a monster again out of Russia? Does America need Russia to forever be the enemy so it can go back to its glory days when it was seen as a hero by the rest of the world? Maybe so. You know, the United States must have an enemy because we have to feed the industrial war complex, the military-industrial complex, and it's got a big appetite, a huge appetite. I mean, I saw statistics the other day where something like 3,500 of my tax dollars goes to the military on average, an average person in America, and yet only 50 or 60 bucks are spent on the environment. And I'll tell you something, we're going to kill ourselves with the environment maybe before we kill ourselves with our military-industrial complex. The American empire would be nothing if it weren't for its massive military. At least 800 U.S. military bases are peppered around the world. 
Some people refer to these bases as America's version of the colony. What do you think about that comparison? I think it's completely accurate. 800. So my tax dollars go, you know, they're always telling us someone's out to get us. Who is it? Who is out to get the United States? Who wants to invade the United States and take over our debt? Who wants to invade the United States and take over all of our problems? There's no countries throughout the world that want to do this. They have their own problems. They have their own local things to deal with. Yet we're being sold a bill of goods and the stupidity of the people in this country to buy it that somehow someone is out to overthrow us and dethrone us. I would like to know who that is. Who's going to do a Normandy invasion on Virginia? It ain't going to happen, and you're getting sold a bill of goods on it. It's time to end these bases, bring our kids home, and if we need our borders protected, here's my trade-off. Bring all the, close all the military bases throughout the world, bring our military home, and if we need our borders, and you notice I said that plural, the Mexican and Canadian border, because I'm not a racist, if we need those protected, we'll do it with our own military after we bring them home. All right, well, speaking of bringing them home, a lot of people do want to bring the troops back home from our various war zones. But could there potentially be a danger in that? Would it show other countries and contenders that the empire is weakening? Not at all. It would show that we're probably compassionate in trying to not take over the world. I mean, think about it for a moment. How would we feel if somebody put a military base from another country inside our country, would we allow that to happen? Absolutely not. So where do we get off thinking we should have military bases throughout the world to protect us from what? From what today? The Cold War is over. Russia is not trying to take us over as much as our mainstream media wants you to believe that crap. They are not trying to take us over. Nobody's trying to take us over. We're just so damn paranoid, and we, and we pump this out. Our mainstream media have the whole country scared all the time that there's a terrorist behind every tree. Well, I got news for you, people. You got about as much chance of being hit with a terrorist as you do winning the Powerball. Constitutional attorney Bruce Fine is the author of American Empire Before the Fall which examines how America's foreign policy today is very much at odds with what the Founding Fathers had in mind when they wrote the Constitution and, of course, the Bill of Rights. Bruce joins me now from Washington, D.C. Bruce, thank you for coming on. And first of all, how is American foreign policy at odds with the Constitution? Well, it's almost um, turned the Constitution on its head, uh, uh, Jesse. Uh, the, the framers uh, spent more time uh, considering what we in the constitutional realm called the declare war clause than almost any other provision in the Constitution because history had taught them that republics were invariably overthrown uh, by dictators, uh, by the use of military to create empires. Uh, they disowned that idea. Uh, they wanted a republic, not an empire. And so for the first time, indeed, in the history of the world, the framers entrusted the authority to take the nation from a state of peace to war. And I pause for a second 
to remind the audience, when you're at war, you legalize what in ordinary circumstances is first-degree murder. That is, you can kill people even when it's not in self-defense. So it's a very serious step to take, among other things. And so the authority to take the nation from peace to war was given exclusively to Congress, withheld from the president. And that was the view of virtually every participant in framing the Constitution, whether James Madison or Alexander Hamilton or James Wilson. And indeed, our very first president, George Washington, who presided over the Constitutional Convention, said that any offensive use of the military required congressional direction. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, when James Madison was our Secretary of State, obtained 10 statutes from Congress to fight the Barbary pirates. And he went to Congress and said, if I'm attacked, I have no authority to go beyond self-defense unless you authorize it. As late as the prize cases in 1862, the United States Supreme Court said, only Congress, only Congress can initiate war against a foreign country, not the president. So that was the understanding. And remember as well, Jesse, it wasn't just a, a, a pedantic understanding. It was built upon what we know of human nature and the lust for power. The reason why Congress was giving the authority to go to war, not the president, because there's nothing in it for Congress to fight gratuitous wars. They don't get money. They don't get strength. They don't get monuments or footprints in the sands of time. There's nothing in it. It's a collective organization. There's no one who gets a statute built of them on Lafayette Park. And so they would be cautious, if you will. Uh, they would ensure that our real th uh, danger was present before they would authorize war. The executive, it was the opposite. All history taught that executives were inclined to go to war to fight vendettas over personal insults, to gain power, to think that they would leave footprints in the stands of time, to get resources, to get secrecy. Uh, this craving for power is inherent in all executive branches, not just the president. So that is why the war power was entrusted to Congress. And indeed, those authors have been vindicated by history. Congress in 228 years has only recognized a state of war in five conflicts. In all cases, it was thought that we had been the victim of aggression uh, and therefore we needed to respond, whether it was the War of 1812, Mexican-American War, uh, Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II with Pearl Harbor. Congress never once in 228 years has taken the initiative you know, to put us in a state of war uh, that had, uh, because we thought we needed to conquer a country or humanitarian reasons or otherwise. Now, where are we today? Despite that history, at present, the president goes to war at whim without any congressional authorization or Congress delegates its power, which they can't do, for the president to fight any war he wishes. It really began with the Korean War, uh, which began in complete duplicity, if you will, with President Harry Truman. Uh, when the treaty to join the United Nations was before the United States Senate in 1948, uh, President Truman cabled from Potsdam to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and said, of course, if we fight under the United Nations flag, I will have to come to Congress to get authority to fight such a war. But when Korea comes in 1950 
and uh, the, the United Nations Security Council uh, authorized military force against North Korea, Harry Truman did not go to Congress. He characterized the war as a, quote, police action, and then fought the Korean War. It lasted for at least three years. We're still in a state of war at present. We have an armistice. And ever since that initiative by Harry Truman to white out, if you will, delete the war clause, presidents go to war on their own. They use the military offensively without any specific direction from Congress. And it goes from Eisenhower in the Middle East sending troops to, to Lebanon on his own. We have the Gulf of Tonkin resolution where Congress told President Johnson, you can do whatever you want. To, uh, to, to fight in Vietnam, however you wish to do that, through Iraq wars, through World War in Panama, war in Grenada, now we have wars against, you know, in Bosnia under Clinton, and then in Kosovo, and then Iraq, and then in Libya under, under, under uh, Obama, and now we're fighting, you know, every terrorist group in the world uh, that the president identifies as terrorists based upon secret information, and indeed, Think of this because, Jesse, to my mind, this is the most frightening element of where we are. In times of war, the law is silent. That's been true since Cicero thousands of years ago. So since 9-11, when we've been at a permanent state of war, because no one will ever say there's zero chance of a terrorist incident, and so we're fighting a tactic, not a country. Yeah, the, the president claims the power and has utilized it to play prosecutor, judge, jury, and executioner to kill anybody who he says, based on secret evidence, is an imminent threat to the United States. And no one ever gets to look at the evidence. No one knows the standards the president used. And basically, the president can be an assassin without accountability. Bruce, what do we do about this? I mean, you know, you're saying when it comes to drone strikes, the president doesn't need an act of Congress. He can just order a drone strike. They've done it. They've killed American civilians in foreign countries with drone strikes. What can we do to reverse something that clearly defies our Constitution and Bill of Rights? And as a country, if we don't have a Constitution and Bill of Rights, what the hell are we then? Yeah. Well... I think that as citizens, we need um, to insist uh, in the elections with Congress that members need to take you know, a no presidential wars pledge. I've actually drafted one uh, and I'm working with a couple of congressmen and women to have it introduced in, in the House of Representatives, where we say only Congress, you have to make these decisions to send our men and women into harm's way to risk that last full measure of devotion. You can't hand it off to the president, and you also have to be prepared to impeach and remove a president for initiating and conducting or continuing a presidential war in violation of the United States Constitution. The Congress has that power. They have been derelict in exercising it. They are invertebrate. They want to race away from accountability. And the American voters have let them get away with it. They have not insisted that it's up to you to hold the president accountable. We don't have you know, plebiscites anymore. Uh, we don't have Congress uh, entrusting the American people a referendum to go to war. And that is how we need to get this reversed. And we also need, when it comes to voting for president, to insist that presidents answer the question outright. Where is, will you go to authority? Will you go to war on your own without Congress? And if so, where is your constitutional power? And make it clear, you will not vote for a president who will undertake and continue Bruce, the practice for 70 years. 
Bruce, if we, if America and empire continues down this path, the current path we're going on right now, what do you think the future is and how will the world be impacted if we continue down the path we're going? Well, it will be a very grim future. You know, we have a current generation growing up, Jesse, whose entire life we've been at war, you know, since 9-11. There's not a day that hasn't been the United States in a state of war. And it only is going to expand. Uh, that's what I wrote about in my book. You know, unless Congress calls a halt, the executive branch will continue to expand this global warfare. I mean, if we just think about the last years, you know, it used to be ISIS in Syria. Now we're attacking Assad in Syria. We have soldiers who are in Mali and Niger. We're in 172 countries. So what it means for the United States is we will go bankrupt. You know, it's already projected based upon the, the, the stunning money that we are wasting on the military, 700, really probably over a trillion dollars annually for our national security budget, we will be just paying debt service, debt service on our outstanding 25, 26, 27, $12 trillion debt of over a trillion dollars a year. We won't have any money to pay for anything else. We will bankrupt ourselves. Meanwhile, we are creating enemies abroad because we are gratuitously invading their countries. We are killing civilians. And they are not happy about that, as we wouldn't if anyone was attacking us. So we are basically in the kind of the, the 11th hour of the Roman Empire before it collapsed when Attila the Hun, you know, entered Rome, if we permit this to continue. Oftentimes, people forget that empires can collapse very, very rapidly. You know, the Soviet Union almost collapsed in, in, in less than a year. And we have an unsustainable military, an unsustainable budget, and for the world, what I fear is that when a president becomes beleaguered, uh, and we've seen this in the last years, they oftentimes look for foreign policy initiatives in war to distract public attention. You may recall that Bill Clinton, the day after he was impeached, you know, we were yep. doing strikes in Iraq and Afghanistan and then in Sudan, yep. and President Nixon put us on high depth three alert, nuclear alert during Watergate. <laughs> And so yeah. you, could, you could anticipate oh, a president. Yeah. And if we, go, if we go nuclear now, given our power, we could have a nuclear winter and destroy the entire species based upon a nuclear Bruce, exercise. I don't want to interrupt, but we're running out of time. It's been a real pleasure. Love to have you back again and continue this talk if we continue down this road we're going. Bruce, thank you for your work and keep speaking out. We need it. Thank you, Jesse. The world according to Jesse. Governor, let's turn to the viewers. We asked people on social media, what does American exceptionalism mean to you? Chris H. says it used to be a sense of responsibility for Americans to set an example for the rest of the world. But globalization and the erosion of the nation state have made this idea obsolete. How do you answer? I agree with her. We used to be looked up throughout the world, and Brigida, I can speak from experience, because I leave this country every year for a few months, and I get outside it, and I got news for people in the United States of America. We're not well-liked anymore. We're not the, the icon that sits on up high that everyone wants to attain now. Ah. Uh -uh. We need to, people in this country better take a hard look in the mirror and understand we are not popular anymore. I remember there was a poll came out a couple years ago, two, three years ago by Gallup, 
where they interviewed like 4,000 people internationally. And one of the questions they asked was, if your country, no Americans now, if your country were to go to war, who would it likely be against? 23% or literally one out of four people said the United States. Second was China with 8%. Third was Pakistan with 6%. As a veteran, I hang my head in shame, knowing that one out of four international people believe if they go to war, it'll be against the United States. All right, Jeremy says it means America doesn't have to play by the international rules and enforces their dictates upon the other countries through military force for profit and power, but it does this in the name of freedom and democracy. I agree wholeheartedly with that statement, too. Uh, you know, they sit and talk about, let's go to Syria right now, where we just pumped the missiles in. All right, they're accusing Assad of using chemical weapons on his people. Well, the chances are pretty good he got those chemical weapons from us. And we've been using chemical weapons for years. The hypocrisy is astounding on this deal. But yet, we pump rockets into Syria. That's supposed to be an act of peace? violence against violence and the end result is peace? I don't think so. It's never worked before and it's not going to work now. The United States and its people are under some illusion that somehow if we respond militarily, that brings peace? I got news for you, people. War brings war, not peace. All right, thanks for watching today's show. Send us your comments on social media for a chance to be featured in next week's episode when we talk about universal basic income and whether it will make society better or just become a bureaucratic nightmare. Free money, that's going to be a good one. Until then, always remember, when the government lies, the truth becomes a traitor. Stay vigilant. I'm Jesse Ventura. Welcome to my world. Come along for the ride. The world according to Jesse.